Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are now in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, continuing with the Sermon on the Mount. We're at verse 16. Jesus says this, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. So let's talk about fasting. First of all, it probably, this particular passage probably refers more to private rather than public fast because a public fast, of course, everybody's going to know that men are fasting because that's what public means. So this is talking about when you fast privately, don't do it so that everybody knows that you're fasting. How do they know? Well, because you've got a somber look on your face. Look like you're hungry. Now, Pharisees fasted frequently, particularly every Monday and Thursday. So every Monday and Thursday come around, people probably know that the Pharisees were fasting. What does fast mean? Fast means total abstinence from food. This is Adam Clark's definition, and I love it because so many people abuse that word and say, oh, I'm fasting basketball, or I'm fast. I'm on a partial fast. I'm fasting between breakfast and lunch. That's not a fast. A partial fast, in fact, the term partial fast is oxymoronic. There's no such thing as a partial fast. Either you're fasting or not. It's like being pregnant. Either you are or you're not. So let's use the term fast in its proper meaning. John Gill has a, a, a great way of describing what it means to look somber when you're privately fasting, to put on very mournful airs and dismal looks, make wry faces and distorted countenances, banish all pleasantry and cheerfulness from them, which, is, of course, is how I feel when I fast, but you're not supposed to let people know that. And by the way, I wouldn't get super religious about about not letting people know. I just don't go out of your way to let people know. But if somebody offers you food or something and you're fasting, I guess you're going to have to tell them, I'm sorry, I'm not eating today. And there's nothing wrong with that. But don't go around. That's not the same thing as going around and saying, look at me, I'm fasting. Look how holy I am. How do, they, how do these Pharisees disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting? Well, here's some options. They could have neglected to wash their faces. They could have put ashes upon their head. They could have made their faces black with ashes or with soot just to let everybody know how holy they were. Uh, actually, some people even suggest that they weren't actually fasting. They were just pretending to fast. Put ashes on their head and go out well, after eating a big steak and say, I'm fasting. Well, obviously, this again is aimed at hypocrisy, which is in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is one of the big themes of those two chapters. Don't be a hypocrite. Matthew chapter 6, verse 17 through 18. This is Jesus telling them how they're supposed to fast. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. This is like the previous verse. I think it was in the previous chapter. Uh, well, actually, I believe it was in this chapter about when you pray, go into your room and pray secretly. Same thing with fasting. Only let your father see it. Your father is unseen. Of course, the idea is he's unseen. So uh, don't fast before people you can see. There's a contrast there. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So if you want a reward, don't get the reward from people who are praising you for being spiritual. But fast before the Lord so that he will reward you. Now, let's, let's talk now about whether Christians should fast. I think it's a good idea at certain times and certain seasons, but it's never commanded. And there's never even a pattern that you can see in the New Testament that people fasted. There is the example in Acts chapter 13 when Paul was getting ready to start out on his first journey, Paul and Barnabas. They at, where were they at, I forgot where they were. Oh, in Antioch, in Syrian Antioch, they fasted. 
and prayed before he went out. So I think it's a good idea. That's a good example right there. You can fast before something big like you want to get, should I marry this person? That might be a good time to fast. Should I take this job? And big occasions. I used to do it every week, uh, once a week for about how many years was that? I think it was it was about uh, eight years, I think, for a certain gentleman to get elected president, and he was elected president, changed the course of history, destroyed the the evil empire. So I you know, I believe in fasting, but it's never commanded anywhere. And remember when John the Baptist was fasting and his disciples came to him and said, Why do your disciples came to Jesus and said, Why do your disciples not fast? Why are they not fasting? Jesus' own disciples weren't fasting at the time. So you've got to be careful about suggesting that people need to fast in order to live a balanced Christian life. When I tell new converts the four things they need to do, number one, pray. Number two, read the Bible. Number three, have fellowship. Number four, share your faith. I never mentioned fasting because it's not, you can't make it a pattern. You can't make it a command. But at any rate, if you do fast, by golly, don't do it so that anybody can see you. Keep it as quiet about it as you can. Jesus says when you fast, put oil in your head. Well, that's exactly the opposite of ashes. Oil was used for joyous occasions. It was put on the head and used to wash the face. And in fact, anointing the head and washing the face with oil was directly opposed to Jewish canons for fast days. This is according to John Gill. Jesus was always directly confrontational with Pharisees. If there was a tradition of men that the Pharisees had created, Jesus went out of his way. To break it. Good for him. These Pharisees needed to have their traditions tromped on. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus turns to the question of money, which, of course, is one of the major problems that mankind has. I used to tell people all the time, if you can handle two things, you'll be happy 99.44% of the time of the rest of your life. Handle money and handle the opposite sex. If you can do that, you've got it made. Well, let's talk about money here. First of all, this is a question I used to always have when I would read this as a young, a young kid. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Well, how's moth and rust going to destroy gold and silver? Moths can't eat gold. Rust doesn't appear on gold or silver. Well, it's because I was reading through it through my own cultural lenses. Treasures back then were kept in cloth. Much ancient wealth was stored in fine garments, according to John Gill. For example, in James chapter 5, verse 2, James says this, Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. And so there you see, garments are, are, are in parallel equated with riches. You can't have rust on gold and silver, but by golly, you can. Well, the next question is, how do you have rust on clothes? Well, moths is obvious. Moths can eat up clothes. Well, rust could be like blasting and mildew in corn. It might not be clothes. It might be corn because corn is a treasure. You have corn in your granary. Or you could have uh, vermin in your granary, something like that. Could, Jesus could be referring to that. Uh, anything that cankers or consumes cloths or metals, you know, fungi that grow in the cloth, it could be something like that. But then the point is, is that there is no form of wealth that is secure. And that includes gold and silver. They, Jesus doesn't mention gold and silver, but gold and silver can be stolen and it can be lost. I know a story of a great aunt of mine, was married to a guy that lived in a house in Columbia, South Carolina, right next to Wade Hampton, the famous Confederate Civil War general, a general. 
and son of, I think he was the governor. There were several Wade Hamptons, and one of them was the wealthiest man in the colonies in the colonial period. They were loaded. Well, of course, during the war, wealth was very insecure, so he buried a gold bar in his plantation yard, and then as time goes on, the heirs of the plantation sliced the land up for sale in subdivisions, and my great-aunt was living in a house that was on former plantation land, and by golly, her husband's digging around in the yard and finds a bar of gold. The Hamptons, Wade Hampton never got to use that gold. Gold is not secure. Neither are annuities, neither are index funds in the stock market, neither is any kind of wealth secure. Bank accounts, you name it, social security accounts, there is nothing that is utterly secure. So Jesus is saying, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth because they're not secure. They're going to be destroyed. But thieves can break in and steal it and you can lose it. So why spend all your life worrying about something that never, never can be permanent? This is what Jesus says in another passage in Luke chapter 12, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. And an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. So there's your answer. Focus on the kingdom of God, and he'll take care of you. He'll take care of every financial need you've got. I can tell you, Christian, testimony after testimony of God coming through, he will never, ever let his people starve to death. Now, he might not give them a vacation home in Hawaii, but he'll give them what they need for his purpose, for what they want to do in life. And you just have to trust yourselves with God to prove that. Is Jesus either lying or he's not? Uh, he's going to talk about that in the future verse about no need to worry about the money. He'll take care of it. But right now, he's he's given the negative aspect is don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Later, he's going to say you need to, uh, you don't need to worry about treasures on earth because God's going to take care of you. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's an easy thing. If you look at somebody that's eating up with money, oh, it's so obvious. That's all they talk about. That's all they think about is their love. Remember Gollum in The Hobbit? My precious, my precious, ah, my precious, as he looks at his money and as he, all forms of humanity leech out of him and he becomes an ugly monster. That's what happens to people that chase money. They become monsters. And uh, you need to stay away from them. You need to stay away from them. Matthew 6, verse 22 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. This is the NIV translation, New International Version. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And again, he's, the context here is he's talking about people chasing after money. Now, what does it mean the eye is the lamp of the body? Well, that's how you get light into your body is by, it's through your eyes. And remember, light is a symbol of God. It's all through the scriptures. I, I got a list of scriptures in another audio previous uh, uh, that refer to light. Light is everywhere in the gospel, referring to Jesus and God. So you want to let Jesus and God into your life. You've got to have an eye that's open to Jesus and God. Your eye's got to be good, as the NIV says. The word actually means single. The Greek word is amplus, uh, simple, uncompounded. In other words, your eye is only looking at one thing, and that's Jesus. Not looking at money. It's that your eye is able to see objects distinctly and clearly because it's looking at one thing. It's not looking all over the place, and it's not fudged up and blurry because of disease. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Well, the word Greek word for bad is poneros, 
which means evil, diseased, or defective. So if your eye is diseased, it won't function and you can't let light in. Just as, and so if you're, and what Jesus is saying is if you're chasing wealth, your eye is deceived and you're looking at something that's not going to let light in your body. Your eyes will only let darkness into your body. And if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, the love of money, folks, is the root of all evil. He doesn't say that here. That's one of the, Paul's. I think, told Timothy that. Paul said that somewhere. The love of money is the root of all evil. Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is a proverbial expression, you can't serve two masters, because the common people knew back then that nobody can serve two masters. If you have, in fact, Luke chapter verse, chapter 16, verse 13 says this, no household slave can be the slave of two masters. It's talking about people in a home. There's got to be a chain of authority where one person is in charge of another person so that the person who's got to answer to authority will know what his authority wants. There won't be any conflict of authority. There won't be any turf battles. <clears throat> in management, there's a kind of management system called the matrix system where you have two lines of authority. You got lines of authority running upward, vertically. You got a boss that way, and then you got a boss sideways. Uh, functional boss sideways, a functional boss, maybe a project boss uh, sideways, horizontally, and a functional boss vertically. And so each manager does have two masters. And I looked at that and I thought, well, you know, that's not going to work. Some corporations claim they make it work, but you find it very rarely. And if you read the descriptions of the problems with this kind of management system, it's because one person cannot have two masters. The two masters, if they don't get along, if they're not, if they're not lined up with their objectives, they give contradictory orders, and the the subordinate is going to either love one of the masters or he's going to hate the other one. He's going to start leaning toward one of the masters. That's just human nature. And so Jesus uses human nature to, to as an analogy here to show you can't serve God and money at the same time. You're either going to love God and hate money, or hate the pursuit of money, the raw, lustful pursuit of money, or you're going to love the raw, lustful pursuit of money, and you're going to hate God. You can't do both. Look at people in Amway. I've had people in Amway talk about how they love God, and they'll talk about God for about two seconds to get you involved, and then they'll talk about money, 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 money. And their eye could just see the dollar signs like in a cash register flickering across Chunk, 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 chunk across their eyeballs. That's all they can think about is money. They're totally consumed with it. Well, you're going to do that. You're not going to be serving God. And it, for these these prosperity teachers out there, like a certain elevated preacher from my home state of South Carolina who just built himself a 16,000-square-foot house for his wife, and I don't know how many kids he must have, about 50 to need 16,000 square feet. And how these people can go out and do this, like Kenneth Copeland and the prosperity people, how they can do that and read this verse is beyond human belief. How much money did Jesus have? Was he always taken care of financially? Yes, he was. How much money did Paul have? Jesus, Paul said, I thank my God that uh, he takes care of all my needs. He's able to take care of all my needs. Paul had what he needed, but he didn't have a lot. He had just what he needed. You don't need a $50 million trillion house to show how spiritual you are. It completely contradicts the scripture and it's offensive and it's caused huge stumbling and division in the body of Christ and it causes people to mock Christianity. It's disgraceful. If you're giving money to, to people who are preaching this nonsense on TV, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should be just as ashamed of yourself as the people who are preaching that nonsense. All right, let's look at this word despise. This person who 
serves two masters will, will be devoted to one and despise the other. What does despise mean? Well, there's a split of opinion on this. Adam Clark says despise, the Greek word for despise there, it means to love less. It does not mean, says Clark, to hate in our normally accepted use of the word. For example, Jacob hated Leah. He didn't really hate Leah. He just loved her less than he loved Rachel. If he hated Leah, he would have really treated her badly. He didn't treat her all that bad, badly. In fact, she bore a lot of his children. She was a part of the household. How about when God said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated? Did God hate Esau? No, it just means he he treated Jacob more favorably with the prosperity that would inherit the promises of Abraham that would lead to the Messiah. And Esau, he just gave normal prosperity that weren't a part of that covenant blessing. That doesn't mean God hated Esau. Now, that's what Adam Clark says, and I say that this sort of takes the punch out of the teaching because despise the other, it, it, it feels good. You know, you love God and you despise money, you despise money and you love God. And by the way, when we say despise money, we don't mean despise money. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with gold. Gold is used in a positive sense in many places in the scripture. It's when you t make an idol out of the gold that it's condemned by God. And it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's not money is the root of all evil. It's the lust for money that's the root of all evil. So with that caveat, let's say this. You cannot serve and love God and love money at the same time. Let's put it that way. Uh, you will despise one or despise the other, if that's what despise means in the normal English sense of the word. Clark says it doesn't really mean that. It means you you love the other less. You love money, love money less than you love God. Well, that sort of that doesn't make the teaching quite as stark. Jameson Fawcett and Brown disagrees with Clark and says this. The word here shows that that the two here intended are in uncompromising hostility to each other, which is an awfully searching principle, and I tend to agree with that. There's not, it's not a matter of you loving one a little bit more than you love the other. It's no, you love one and despise the other. You hate the other. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't know which way that goes. I just know my authorities disagree with each other, and I tend to agree with Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown on that one. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 27. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus continues, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body. What you will wear is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? This is the NIV translation. Now you'll notice here Jesus is trying to affirm the worth of these people. They're poor people. They don't have free medical care. They don't have doctors. They get sick. They're likely to die. They don't have money. They are living hand to mouth. And he's telling them, look, you're more valuable than birds and and, and plants. <laughs> you're more important than they are. God loves you and he's going to take care of you. And again, the context is money. You know, let your eye be single. That's money. Can't serve God and mammon. That's money. Mammon, by the way, is another word for money. It's a Syrian word. The King James has mammon. But you can't serve God and you can't love God and love money at the same time. All of these several last several verses having to deal with money. Now he's told them it's wrong to lust for money, and the reason you don't need to lust for money, he talked he brings up now, because God is going to give you everything you need. You don't need to trust in uh, money. Who of you, by worrying about money, can add a single hour to his life? Jesus says. There's an alternate translation 
uh, or a single cubit to his height. Who of you by worrying can add a single cubit to his height? The NIV note says the King James has that, I believe. And I remember reading that as a young man. I used to use the King James and think, well, why would anybody want to add 18 inches and be 18 inches higher? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it really doesn't. And so it makes much more sense to say add a single hour to your life because everybody wants to add time to their life. Okay, in fact, uh, the word itself is rendered age in John 9, verse 21. This is in the Holman Christian Study Bible Translation. But we don't know how he sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. There's the age there. Uh, So we can say in Matthew 6, verse 27, Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his age? And that makes sense. but, But that's... Neither here nor there. The main point here is that worrying doesn't work. It doesn't do a thing for you. It makes you miserable, but it doesn't improve your circumstances. Your financial circumstances are not improved. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Since you cannot serve God in money, therefore I tell you, don't worry about it. That's what the therefore is there for. Quit worrying about money and serve God. We need to remember to take these little sayings and connect them to their context, which is real easy to forget to do. Don't worry about money. Only love God, and therefore, because of that, you don't need to worry about your life. You just don't need to worry about it. We have no worries except for what is of today. Jesus says that in a later verse. Only of today do we have any worries. We don't need to worry. Worry is a sin. I remember I used to worry so much that when I was in seminary and thereafter, for a two-year period, every morning, the first thing I prayed is, God, don't let me worry. I had no wife, I had no children, I had no money, I had an atheist father who didn't care about my Christian life, I had no church, I had no ministry, I was ugly, you know, you name it, I, I, was, I had plenty to worry about, and so I prayed, that was my besetting sin, is I prayed, God help me not to worry, it's the best two year, two year discipline prayer I've ever done, because God has done so much to help me quit worrying, even though it's still a problem, it's always a problem for every human being, but it was a real problem with me. Uh, And I know that God can deliver you from worrying about money. We should never worry about it. Matthew 6, verse 28 through 30. And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? Jesus now uses an analogy. you got grass, hay, just typical grass out there, and you see the little wildflowers that pop up. Actually, the word is lilies, and the NIV is lilies. I'm using the Holman Christian Study Bible here. Uh, the lilies of the field, and that's what we're used to. I think the King James has lilies too. But lilies are, are represent flowers generally, according to the NIV Study Bible and John Gill. So uh, learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. All the flowers, not just lilies, but wildflowers. You look out in the grass, you see the flowers popping up. Now, they're pretty, of course. They're clothed beautifully. They don't labor. They don't spend free. It's automatic. God takes care of them. They don't worry. They don't, they don't ever think about it. Solomon, all of his splendor, was not adorned like one of these. Solomon, of course, was the richest king of the Jews. He was, in fact, the richest king in the ancient Near East. He had ships leaving down there on the uh, Persian Gulf. Uh, not the Persian Gulf. The uh, Red Sea at, at Eilat. The Gulf of Aqaba and Eilat. He was trading with Lebanon, and then his his trade went out all over the world. Uh, Egypt was weak. Syria was weak. There was no other kingdom around. All the little kinglets 
would come see like the Queen of Sheba down there in Saudi Arabia, apparently where she was. She went up there to see him for all his wisdom. He was an architect. He had hanging gardens. He had a thousand wives. He had money coming out of his eyeballs. But not even Solomon was as beautiful as those little flowers in the field. So the grass is an analogy to us, to human beings, and the wildflowers is, is an analogy to the things that we need to wear. God will take care of that. That grass which is of so little value that it was thrown into the furnace because the Jews used grass to, to fire their clay ovens. That's how that was done. It's thrown into the fire. It wasn't worth anything except to be burnt up. So if something that's going to be burnt up is clothed with such beautiful wildflowers, then how about you, human beings made in the image of God? Aren't you going to be clothed a little bit better than them? You have little faith. Now, see, Jesus expects you to believe in him. That's what faith means, believe and trust. you got to believe and trust he's going to take care of you. If you're constantly worrying about money, you're not believing and trusting him. Those two are contradictory. Faith and worry are polar opposites. They mix together like oil and water. The more faith you have, the less worry you have. Let's look at what James 1.11 says about grass. For if the, the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass, its flower falls off. That beautiful adornment of the grass falls off eventually with heat. But that's not so with us. That's not so with us because God adorns us and cares for us and never stops adorning us and caring for us. Matthew 6, verse 31 through 34. So don't worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the idolaters says the Holman Christian Study Bible. KJV says the Gentiles. NIV says the pagans. For the idolaters, the Gentiles, the pagans, the, the people that are not in the kingdom, they eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. And this, in my opinion, is one of the most, the most sublime verses in the scripture because everybody's chasing money. Everybody. I, I used to practice law. I've been in business. Oh my gosh, I have seen people sell their souls for the dollar so many times it's almost boring to even look at anymore. But I've also seen Christians who've given it all up and who follow God only and watch God provide for them. Therefore, Jesus continues, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Take one day at a time. If you take life by, if you take life by the yard, it's very, very hard. If you take life by the inch, it's a cinch. We have no worries except what we've got to do to get to bedtime tonight. If we would live that way, our we would have the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. Notice that Jesus is talking about what we shall eat, what we will wear. Eats the stomach, what you, what you put in your stomach and what you wear on your back. Adam Clark says this, The belly and back of a whirling are his compound God. And with that, we close chapter 6. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for the next audio.